Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. In the cases that we're looking at this week, a man is accused of killing his girlfriend and immediately replacing her with a lookalike girlfriend who had even the neighbors fooled. So no one knew that the original girlfriend was even missing. Police in Arkansas say that they unraveled the case of the murdered woman through the serial number on her breast implants. But first, a woman who thought that killing the father of her baby would solve her custody problems has been convicted of murder. It was an elaborate plot that involved poisoning the man's oatmeal. And when the fentanyl lace breakfast didn't finish him off, police say that she strangled the man with his favorite tie. Her accomplice was her own grown daughter who told the jury that she did it to get her mother's love and attention. We are talking about literally killing to get mom's attention here. We are recording this on Wednesday, August 31st of 2022. Our guest today is Rodney Diggs, a Los Angeles-based litigator with experience in trying cases in both the federal and the state courts and with a focus on discrimination cases. Welcome back to the program, Rodney. Thank you, Anna. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm really, really good. Can you believe it? It's the last day of August. We're done. We're done. We're done. We're done. September. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Okay, we've got some incredible cases this week. Our first one comes from Indiana, specifically from Carmel, Indiana, which, by the way, I know this is slightly off topic, but this community is known for having the most roundabouts of any city in the country. They have 125 roundabouts. As I was researching the community to figure out, you know, what kind of a place is Carmel? I'm like, really? This is what they're known for, roundabouts. Oh, oh you know, I'm used to roundabouts in, in D.C. They have a lot and have to get used to that. So to outbeat D.C. is something. Yep. Yep. I just thought I would share that. It's just one of those unusual nuggets of information I came across while researching this murder case, right? Because facts are facts. So um, we're talking here about a horrible and heinous way to deal with a problem of a custody dispute. Look, right. families go through this all the time. They're horrible. They're painful. It's difficult on the children. It's difficult on the parents, on the grandparents. I get that. But there is no way to solve that problem by killing off one of the parents. It's just, it, right? Exactly. I mean, I, 
I never understand why, you know, some parents will go to this limp to, you know, commit murder on someone during a custody dispute because at the end of the day, now the child is left with no parent. Exactly. Right. One is dead and the other one is in prison for the rest of her life. Now, who's going to raise that child? Exactly. So, yes, very short sighted here. But this was a plan which was in progress for some time. And I always find this interesting, Rodney, because I always think to myself, at what point does the person who is perpetrating this crime not have a moment of, oh, my God, this is a really bad idea. What am I doing? There's no. none of that. There was there's no breaks on this one. Not not on this one for her. This one was third time's charm. Yes. Sadly, it worked. It worked. It was horrible. So we're talking about 42-year-old Heidi Littlefield. Now, she's been convicted of killing her ex-boyfriend, 46-year-old Francis Kelly. And this, again, over a custody battle. She didn't want him to have custody of their two-year-old daughter. So she eliminates him. According to police, Heidi tried to kill him several times, and the last one is the one that worked. But Heidi did not act alone. She had her 23-year-old daughter, Logan Runyon, and this was not her father. And the daughter's boyfriend, 29-year-old Robert Walker, helped with this whole crazy plan. The plan was to poison Francis by lacing his food with the deadly opiate fentanyl. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of background here. Um, at the time of Francis Kelly's death, he and the ex-girlfriend, Heidi, so the two parents here, were in the middle of this contentious custody battle, and they were due in court. They were scheduled to have a hearing on January 27th of 2021, but Heidi and her daughter killed him two weeks before the hearing. Correct. Correct. It's interesting um, because, you know, they, they tried a couple times before, but initially... The plan, uh, from my understanding, wasn't to kill him, but it was to have drugs in the system so that when he's tested, she can say, aha, he's not a good fit father. He has drugs in the system. He can't watch our two-year-old. And then she said, no, that's not a good plan. Let's just kill him. Right. That th that one has too many variables that you can't control. What right. if it doesn't work? What if he doesn't have enough drugs in his system? What if they don't test him? Exactly. It, yep. it That one she, she could not control. So... The thing I find disturbing about the plot is obviously the plot itself and, and the heinous way that this poor man was killed. But I also am, I'm having a little trouble here with something, Rodney. Apparently, police had been warned and told that Heidi was threatening and plotting to kill Francis, yet did nothing. How does this happen? I, I don't know. It, because they got calls and it was from her ex-husband. And so he did. He called two police departments. He called the police department and he called the sheriff's department. And he said, look, there's a person who's in danger. His name is Fran. The person who is going to perpetrate this attempted murder, her name is Heidi Littlefield. And they did nothing. They said that she's going to try to poison him. I believe his life is in danger. Did not warn Francis Kelly at all. They just sat there and, and they gave an excuse saying that there wasn't enough information. I, that that right there um, is, is mind boggling. So let me ask you, since your area of expertise here um, as a litigator, is there any possible cause here where, you know, the family of Francis Kelly can say the police completely dropped the ball here? They were warned that that there was someone trying to kill him and they did nothing to prevent it when they were told. 
Absolutely. The the family can um, go ahead and bring a 1983 claim um, against the police agency for failure to train, failure to supervise under a case called Manel. So it's a Manel claim that they can bring and just say, you should have been trained better when you receive a call that someone's life is in danger. You need to do something to prevent that. You could have prevented this. In fact, you could have prevented it, you know, at the first time when, you know, she tried to um, uh, lace his uh, miso soup with uh, fentanyl. And then the other time when she put it in his oatmeal. So the fact that the police did nothing, they had this information and they failed to act. Um, there is absolutely a claim on behalf of the family um, uh, for uh, for Francis Kelly. I'm really upset about that part because there was an opportunity here to stop this and, and put this crazy woman away and yet save a life. Um, several opportunities. So that's, that's very interesting. And uh, I hope that the family does follow up with something like that because there's, there's just no excuse for it. There's absolutely, because they could have, at least the police could have gone to Heidi and at least questioned her. Right. Correct. Correct. And that could have been enough of a cold bucket of water to stop her. Now, she may have ultimately killed him. She could have ultimately run him down in the street. I'm not saying it would have completely stopped her, but it might have stopped this plan. That That's correct. It could have stopped the plan and she may have had to alter it or something else, or at least Francis could have been warned and he could have done something else. Um, change the locks because my understanding is that although he had um, that uh, joint custody of the two-year-old daughter, uh, Heidi would still come and watch him in his house anytime he watched the daughter, which is strange because it wasn't um, supervised visits. It was that they have joint custody and she would come and be in the house. And so maybe he would change that up some and say, you know what, when I have my daughter, it's my time and I'll do this and we'll drop her off and pick up at a, you know, joint location. Um, but yeah, she had that. She had access to his house. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the strangest thing is when you listen or at least read the voicemails, um, he says, I know you were in my kitchen last night. Amazing. Um, right. You no. Know, how do you know that? Um, you know, you're able to taste the difference in your oatmeal and then say, I know you're here last night. Did you put something in my oatmeal? I mean, the fact that he called her right away, leads you to believe that he possibly knew that this lady was, you know, crazy or deranged or or something, um, because that part stands out to me that he even knew that to, to call her and say, you did something to my oatmeal. So that's that in itself is interesting. Yeah. And it's also possible while he may not have thought that the threat against him was one that would absolutely kill him. Right. He may not have realized that he may have been thinking in his mind, "Ooh, I've now have mounting evidence for my custody case that this woman is unhinged and she should not have custody of our little girl. So he may have been building um, his own case against her thinking custody, not thinking, oh, she's really going to kill me. Correct. That part, too. Exactly. Exactly. Um so Heidi had tried to kill Francis several times, as you said, and the window of this was October 2020 through January of 2021. And um, <laughs> the amazing thing is when they put the fentanyl in the miso soup, as you said, the takeout food, um, that just didn't work, which is why then they came up with this next plan. It's like, well, the guy likes oatmeal, so we're going to put it in his oatmeal. So Heidi convinced her daughter, Logan, to buy the fentanyl in neighboring Ohio from drug dealers. Now, the daughter has admitted 
to struggling with a meth addiction, Mm -hmm. um, which could explain um, her ability to maybe quickly get her hands on some drugs. I don't, you know, not making any judgments here. And so um, from the mother's perspective, she probably thought, well, she's the perfect one to go get the drugs. So according to the prosecutors, Heidi then plotted with Logan to do the poisoning. And what's interesting here is that the mother had the daughter do the poisoning. The mother plans, master plan here, plotting away. Mm -hmm. And then the daughter is the one who's supposed to carry out the poisoning. So when the backup plans kind of weren't looking so great, and I think you kind of, uh, you know, you were talking about that there was yet one other plan in the works And that was to hire the daughter's boyfriend. Well, really, it was to ask him, Robert Walker, give him $2,500 to go hire a hitman. So now you're turning to your daughter's boyfriend saying, hey, can you find me a hitman? He's $2,500. Well, he later tells police when he's picked up on this, he's like, look, I was never going to hire anybody. And I certainly wasn't going to be involved in killing anyone. I took the money and we used it for drugs, clothes and hotels. So he and his girlfriend enjoyed the $2,500. Correct. Finally, someone who's thinking clearly here, right? <laughs> not, I am definitely not going to kill anybody, lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So, um, what's interesting here is that Logan, the daughter, ended up testifying against her mom. And that was incredibly powerful because she was a witness to what had happened. And even though the forensics may have supported the theory, you had someone in real time telling you how and what and admitting to doing it. Mm-hmm. So I think um, she was uh, op- absolutely the most powerful tool that prosecutors had. So Logan testifies that on the third and final attempt to kill Francis, this was on January 14th, and the mother had told her daughter to sneak into Francis Kelly's house and put the fentanyl on the oatmeal. Now, Francis Kelly's last known communications occurred on January 15th. That would have been the next day. And there was one communication, a series of communications between Francis and Heidi. So the father and the mother here. And at first they were talking about their daughter. And then Francis switches, as you as you mentioned, and says, quote, did you do something to the oatmeal that was in my fridge? And then Heidi responds, What the actual expletive are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Okay, whatever. And he (laughs) writes back, you were in my fridge last night and it tasted funny after a couple of bites. And now I am lightheaded. So Francis then sends an email to his work um, and and he does that at 156 p.m. Mm -hmm. So this gives you a timestamp of the last time we think that he's alive. And this is the last email that he sends. And he tells his boss that it was really weird that Francis would never leave work before five. So again, things are are not right. Logan then testified that she and her mother snuck back into Francis's house later that day and they found Francis alive. Uh, he was on the floor, face down, gasping for air. Yeah. Still yeah. alive. Still alive. But it doesn't end there. No, no. They're no. taking a step further. Yes, they do. So the mother says to the daughter, snap his neck. And she's like, And this is all in court testimony. It's like, no, I can't. He's too heavy. So mom decides to take decisive action. Heidi goes to his bedroom, chooses his favorite tie and uses it to strangle him to death. And then, then just to make sure that it's finally done this time, right? Mm -hmm. She then bashes his head in. 
So fentanyl poisoning, strangulation, and trauma to the head, all found by the coroner, uh, found the fentanyl in the system. Yep. I, it's interesting because that's a lot of rage. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing, um, Anna, to, you know, put fentanyl or, or poison someone and, and you're not there and, you know, the death occurs, right? That's, that's still a motive and that's still first degree murder because you're planning it. But to now come to the scene and, you know, the fentanyl probably for the third time doesn't really work. And you're like, you see the person there lying, gasping for air. And again, as you said earlier, the thought is not, oh my, maybe I shouldn't do this. So let me try to help Francis and, and call her or do something. The thought process is to go to the room, look for it. Ah, this is his favorite tie. Strangle, uh, uh, strangle him, and then bash his head in the ground to make sure that he is dead. I mean, that's that's a lot of uh, hatred inside and a lot of rage. That's, and that's, that's why I was saying that even if the police had halted her from this plan, it's possible that she was on this spiral that ultimately she would have gotten him. But maybe he would have been able to at least protect himself and always be aware. But she was on a mission and there was no way that it was going to end any other way than with the father of her baby dead. That's what she wanted and that's what she ends up getting. So three days later, on January 18th, police are called to do a welfare check because no one has seen Francis Kelly. So he's found dead, except he's on his couch. And then police say that underneath his couch is a bag of cocaine. So it looks like, you know, it looks like it could be an overdose, but really what they're doing is they're setting him up to look like he died of, an, of a drug overdose. Right. I, I don't know how they thought they would one how they get away with there's too much dna evidence but to have this bludgeoning to the head and then have and place him on a couch right exactly I mean, then, then now, now how do you explain the head trauma right so they're not they're not thinking through um no <laughs> not thinking through at, at all um yeah but again it goes back to the the police the authorities could have acted could have done something to you know, possibly prevented the murder in, in, in this in this way. Um, yeah, I don't know. Another thing, too, and this could be an, another motive in addition to the um, child custody issue is uh, at trial, they talked about um, wanting to have access to his million dollar policy, um, his he had life insurance. And so I'm not sure if uh, if Heidi was still a beneficiary or not, because that wouldn't make any sense to think that they would be able to get this $1 million life insurance policy. But the baby, but the baby would, and therefore uh -huh. who would have control over the money for the baby, but the mother who needs to take care of the baby. That's right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. So the daughter, Logan Runyon, testified for about three hours and she admitted that she did this to get her mother's attention, approval, and love, which is so sick. Yeah. You know, I, I just, I, I can't possibly get into her head and think, wow, this is what's going to change my relationship with my mother. If I just do what she wants. Yeah. I, yeah. Said, you know, kill for her mother's love. And yeah, that's, that's that's what happened. And then afterwards, all right, that's done. Let's go get a sandwich. Yeah, this is not going to mend this relationship at all. 
no. the defense, the defense painted Logan as um, as a woman who was incredible, that she was a meth addict and therefore could not be believed. And she told the jury, yes, yes, I am an addict. Yes, I am. But that doesn't mean that I'm lying right now. Correct. And uh, it's not like she got a sweet deal either, that Logan got that sweet a deal um, because she's going to be in prison for 25 years. Yep. So it's not like she got immunity to testify against her against her mother. She had to have some sense of responsibility for her actions. And the jury believed her. You know, we'll see what they you know, what she's sentenced to in, in, in October. Um, the, the, the one part I, I I can't get my head wrapped around and I guess there's not a lot of evidence, but the, the boyfriend, um, Robert Walker, he took a plea for 10 years, but I still am confused as to what his role in it. I know that he said he took the money. He had no intent on, you know, committing any sort of, you know, murder, any felony. He used it on drugs and everything else, but he still took a plea for 10 years. So there has to be a little bit more to the story um, as it relates to that, because that's that's a long time as well. It is. It is, especially if he didn't do anything to harm Francis, which we may not know the details of as part of this deal. What's interesting is he kind of was the catalyst for the police to take action because mm-hmm. when he was arrested, he was picked up on an, a different outstanding warrant. And then he tells police about what's been going on. And then that kind of solidifies everything. Now it's very possible. I kind of think it was a perfect storm that the police were looking at the looking at Heidi, right? Because mm-hmm. she would have, yeah. they knew that she was in a custody battle with him. So she would have the most motive. And then they're probably looking at the people around Heidi. And that would be the daughter and the boyfriend. So who's going to know the most? So I have a feeling they, it was a very targeted pickup on a warrant um, that they knew. It's like, hmm, let's have a little conversation with him. Right. So it is interesting that he ends up getting um, the the 10 year sentences. He got, um, it was conspiracy to commit murder. And it's interesting because Logan, she pleaded guilty also to conspiracy to commit murder. And her sentence was 26 years. But here's the thing. She physically, if we are to believe everyone here, she says she's the one who put the fentanyl in there. So she technically poisoned him. But the question is, did she kill him? Because he was still alive. So I guess in the, you know, the way the law would look at this, it's the mother who not only planned it, but she's the one who physically killed him. He was technically still alive from the fentanyl poisoning. Right. It would be both. So you have the conspiracy to commit murder. And so the cons- everybody in conspiracy um, would be liable for the person who actually commits the murder because they were um, uh, conspiring in concert to do that. So. That's why I can see that. I, I I still don't know the conspiracy with Walker, but that's fine. The daughter definitely was. I think the fentanyl, although it didn't, and the thing is, we don't know if it ultimately killed him, but it probably played a part. It played a part in him being so incapacitated that he couldn't, you know, fight back because these are two, you know, tinier women. I don't know the size. I don't think they put that out of, you know, France, but I know that the the women are are very small. Um, and so you know he couldn't do anything to to fight back, land there. So it probably played a part in it. And so that's why she got um, more time. And it could have been where the coroner says, look, this amount of fentanyl that was in his oatmeal would have killed him anyway. And so because of that, 
Um, I think that's uh, part of the reason why she um, took a plea for 26 years, right? So that's that's mm-hmm. a long time as well. So I think that played a part. Um, and she may have thought so because she did get the the two tattoos on her face, the teardrop to signify that, you know, she killed someone. And then she got the cross, um, you know, to ask for forgiveness for committing the murder. You know, I've, yeah, I, I, I remember visiting someone in prison. Um, this young woman had um, killed her father, well, her mother and stepfather, and um, horrible situation. Horrible. The, this young woman had been abused for so long; it was horrendous, and she snapped. And um, I would visit her quite a bit. And when I went to visit her, she had started to do her own um, tattooing, you know, mm. on her face mm. um, to indicate, and and she said to remind herself of um, the two people she had killed. And I looked at her and I said. I have a feeling every single morning that you wake up, you know that. Do you really need a tattoo on your face to remind you that you did that? You know. Mm -hmm. That's something you live with. Of course, then she said to me, she's like, "Um, hello, prison life. I'm like, okay, all right. I realize we're we're living two different worlds here. I totally get that. I'm not making light of it. But, you know, this young woman gave me her perspective where she said to me, yeah, and what you don't understand is where I'm living right now. And I'm going to be in here for a very long time. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just sad. And this case is so sad because it's really, you know, what a dysfunctional family. And it ends in tragedy for everyone. Yeah. Everyone. Everyone. The biggest victim is the two-year-old daughter. That's who's going to suffer the most because she's going to read about this. She's going to hear about this. She may have people taunting her when she gets older. Uh, you know, I'm afraid she's going to need a lot of therapy, you know, just as a kid growing older to know that her mom killed her father um, because they were trying to argue who should have custody over her. And she could blame herself. You yeah. know, that's the ultimate issue. And so, you know, that's what, you know, people don't think about when, you know, they have these disputes and, and want to do harm to the other parent to prove a point. And the kid is smack dab in the middle of everything. they make it not about the child, right? If it's about the child, learn to co-parent, figure it out, but don't kill the other parent because you're not going to get away with it. And then now the child has no parents at all and going to be put in a system and who knows what's going to happen from there. So that's the real victim. And and that's the unfortunate part, because if it was about the daughter, they would have acted in a totally different way. Our next case is out of Arkansas. This case is unusual because when police found the murder victim on the side of the highway, they had no idea who she was. They ultimately ID'd her through the serial number on her breast implants. The victim was identified as 53-year-old Tonya Tran. Her body was found near Altus, Arkansas. The man charged with her murder is her boyfriend, 60-year-old Maurice Richardson. So police say that Maurice... Wasted no time in finding a lookalike to replace his other girlfriend. The new girlfriend resembled the victim so much that police say that when they went to interview him and they saw her, they had to do a double take. It was like, whoa, hold on a second. And then the neighbors didn't even know that it wasn't Tonya because they just thought it was her. They they couldn't even, they hadn't even picked up on it. So it's a little unusual. I will say, Rodney, I mean, a lot of people do have a type. For sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's interesting Definitely. how the police noted that. It's just an odd thing for police to note. 
it had to have been very it was there's something about it that would rub them the wrong way they were like hmm red flag <laughs> I, I, because of that, I, I, I so badly wanted to see pictures. I was trying to figure out, okay, how does Tony look? How does the new girlfriend look? Couldn't find anything. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to see for myself. I wanted to see how do they even fool the neighbors for at least you know three days. Um, right, so and it could have been far away, and you're waving while you're taking the trash out, you know. But okay. clearly, no one realized she was missing. And that, I think, is an important part of what was going on here is like no one even noticed that. So the background is that on August 10th, earlier this month, at 6.30 a.m., state police officers receive a call that there is a body near the highway in Franklin County. And the victim's body was found wrapped in plastic sheeting and then a comforter with a hummingbird and flower print. Very distinctive. And... To help solve this case is sometimes we buy things in sets right. <laughs> and things are matchy-matchy. Exactly. And ultimately, the matchy-matchy hummingbird print was found. So even though, you know, you can't like definitively say this is it, it's like, please, the, what are the chances of the coincidence of it being from the same set? From the same set and that somebody's probably going to buy this very unique um, hummingbird uh couch set or whatever it was, you know, that was in the living room. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So the victim was identified through her breast implants and police reported that the victim had been suffocated, sexually assaulted and beaten. So just horrific. Police say that Tonya had moved to Fort Smith, Arkansas from Garden Grove, California, about two months before her murder. It was determined that the victim was living in a duplex with her boyfriend, Maurice Richardson. So a search warrant was executed on the duplex that was shared by Richardson and Tran on August 20th, and police found her minivan, a 2005 Nissan Quest with California tags that was parked outside the duplex. When officers made contact with Maurice, they discovered that he was living there with another Asian woman identified only as his, not only his new girlfriend, but his fiance. So um, the police were a little surprised because they were like, wow. This looks a lot like our victim, like a lot like our victim. And then police say that the new woman was wearing a wedding ring and other rings that belonged to the victim. Correct. They were able to positively identify that. And then the new girlfriend claimed that she was engaged to Maurice, even though they'd only known each other for three days. Three days. That that part stood out. He, he, he moved quick. love at first sight rodney love at first sight it could be but how long you know did it take for him to propose to to tonya as well I, maybe three days maybe five days i don't know she don't moved know. out from california to arkansas to live with this uh to live with this man um so who knows maybe they were engaged prior to her moving out through the internet of some sort no idea I I don't know. So when they searched the house, they found a brand new mattress, which they thought was interesting, uh, along with runners that matched the comforter that she was wrapped in, the one with the hummingbird. Okay. Correct. 
Once again, they also found her blood in the minivan and markings indicating that the body may have been dragged from the vehicle. A second search warrant was executed for a property about 10 blocks away from the victim's home because police got a tip that Maurice had been doing work on this house. So they wanted to see what was in there, which is a, probably a very good idea. My guess is the tip was far more specific than, oh, he just worked there. I have a feeling it was like, you go in there and you're going to find this, this, and this, which they did. So according to police, they found a bloody mattress as well as personal items that belonged to Tonya, including a bag of her clothing and her citizenship paperwork. No reason for it to be there. Correct. Correct. Zero reason for it to be there. So prosecutors on August 24th, charged Maurice Richardson with first-degree murder. He's currently being held on a $500,000 cash-only bond. And you say that there was an update this this morning, Rodney. Yes, this morning. So, you know, there were three charges. The, the, the first charge um, was for um, theft, uh, $1,000, greater than $1,000. And they dismissed that charge because four days later, they charged him with um, with murder. And so he had his hearing this morning. Uh, he asked the court, can he be released so that he can work, so that he can have money to uh, hire a private attorney because he was given a public defender and the court said, no, um, you'll remain in custody and uh, you can try to get a private attorney while you're in custody and, and work it out. Um, I'm, con- You know, it's, it's interesting what stood out was that his bond was only $500,000. But they um, said cash more. only, right? Which means cash he can't only. put anything up. So maybe that's how th- that they know that he can't meet it. Uh, yeah, I guess that can be a way because if it's, you know, he can. But I mean, if you get a bail bondsman, that's, uh, you know, t- it's generally 10%, you know, $50,000 cash. But I guess most people do put things up. So that could explain it. Um and he may not know a lot of people, so I, I don't know. I don't know the background. Uh, I do not know. You know, <laughs> prosecutors say that Richardson is a habitual offender, which could affect his sentencing if convicted. He has previous convictions for two felonies related to promoting prostitution and the possession of a firearm as a felon. Yeah, the 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 prostitution and promoting that that happened in, in 1982. So that was oh, that's like a century 40, ago. Yeah, it's 40 years ago. Um, so that's interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I think you know, like you and I discussed, I can't put my head around it, you know, for motive or why or any of this happened because if he doesn't have anything since 1982, and that's just promoting, you know, prostitution 40 years ago. I guess he was in his 20s at that time. And then, you know, a handgun, that doesn't mean that he ever injured anyone. Um, If this is not like him, because the manner in which he killed her, if he killed her, allegedly killed her, you want to say it, is to the point, like you said, they could only identify her through her breast implant, right? Face had to be bludgeoned. I believe she was, I don't know if she was cut up or anything, but you couldn't identify her just by looking at her or anything else. They had to go into a breast implant. Um, so that, that's, well, here's the other question about, look, we don't know. We don't certainly not enough has been released for us to, to, to ask a few more questions. Cause now I have so many questions, but here's a few things that are not adding up for me. 
whoever tipped off the police, they knew that there was a, I mean, how do you not know that there's a bloody mattress in the place? That's too big of an item to stash in someone's drawer without them knowing. So um, was there an accomplice? He's not a young man. And, you know, how do you move a mattress? Moving a mattress is not easy. I mean, anyone who's ever had to change a sheet knows it's hard just <laughs> to lift up the corners of of the mattress to tuck in the sheet. So now imagine you're moving, you're moving this mattress. How do you do that? And you're a 60-year-old man, um, you know, so it, it, I don't know what type of shape in he's in, but you're right, there could be a compass. There could be somebody had to know something um, in this town, because it's not that easy to do all these things under the cover of darkness or whatever it may be. So I guess more information will come out because a lot of it just doesn't make sense. Um, but then he takes her jury and finds another Asian woman who looks just like her and proposes to her within three days. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And no doubt that is all really weird and suspicious. Correct. So there's there's a lot going on here and there's a lot we don't know about. So I'm hoping that if there's an update on this, we'll be able to share it with all of you. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories that you all are talking about on our social media. And our producer, Will Updike, is here now with the latest on that. Hey, Will. Hey, how's it going, Anna? Hey, Rodney. Good to see you. Hey, Will. How are you doing? Doing well. So this week, we have a case of a deputy returning to his patrol car to find a very unlikely guest. Now, this case comes out of Madison County, Alabama. The deputy here uh, is named Casey Thrower, I believe is how you pronounce it. And he was delivering some legal papers when all of a sudden a couple of goats inserted themselves into the situation. Uh, So he comes back to his squad car and he finds one goat is like in the driver's seat, uninvited. It's reportedly munching down on some of his paperwork. Uh, He's he's yelling at the goats. He's like, you got to be kidding me. Like, get out of here. You got to get out of here. Another goat climbs on top of the squad car. It's just kind of perched up there having a good time. Uh, so the deputy, you know, recorded these uh, recorded these moments as he's sort of like telling uh, people back at the sheriff's uh, office what the situation is. Um, and he was apparently able to eventually shoo both the goats away. Now, this deputy, deputy thrower here, he's been serving Madison County for over 40 years. Um, but according to some of his co-workers in the sheriff's department, this deputy often leaves his car door open when he's dropping off papers. Uh, so <laughs> oh, I think this was a setup. This was a prank. I'm sorry. Goats <laughs> just are going to get are going to open the door with those right. hooves of theirs. Right. Well, he leaves <laughs> and- the door open, apparently, like <laughs> sometimes when he's like dropping off papers. Uh, so his fellow deputies <laughs> joke that uh, that <laughs> Deputy Casey Thrower was also their goat. Uh, or their greatest of all time. Uh, oh. I'm going to show that video for everybody here. It's it's great. Are you kidding me? Get out. There's nothing to eat in there. Don't eat that. Come on. Are you crazy? But the comments on this one were great. Uh, Stig K said, I think we can all agree who's really in charge here, uh, which, yeah, goats goats are taking over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people were, you know, really thought this was like a good time. However, Scraper did not feel the same way. They said these goats should be given 20 years each. 
Uh, no way. Those goats are innocent. Whatever Save the goats. <laughs> whatever floats your goat, I guess. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, leave the kids alone. No way. Alone. Um, Fallen E said they just wanted to catch a ride to their proper destination, yep. uh, which, yeah, could be true. I, goats aren't the fastest of animals, so I'm sure they'd appreciate the lift. Um, <laughs> Shano's M said, you've got to be kidding me. Oh, uh, that's a good one. You go to be kidding me. Got to get the got to get the double pun in there. I really appreciate it. We have to it. do prizes. Why don't we do prizes for these things? We should do prizes. We should do a pun prize every week. I feel like that's always We should always do a pun prize. You can, give, you can give away paintings like a, a, a Vincent Van goat or something you know (laughs) (laughs) what could we do we don't have anything you know people are always asking me on youtube you know there's one guy on twitter he's he's so hilarious he goes on ebay to find all sorts of crazy merchandise from crime watch daily which was the you know the the tv show that led to this podcast oh wow yeah he's like he finds stuff on ebay i'm like really that's impressive so but we don't really have any merchandise for true crime. We need to get merchandise and we need to give prizes. Yeah. Yeah. At least like some stickers or t-shirts or, I mean, we, I mean you finally got the mug. Uh, oh my we, gosh. We I've been, get some more of those. Rodney, for a year, I had been going on and on and on about a mug. I wanted a mug. And I know everybody laughs at me because they think I drink out of a milk bottle, which I don't. It's just, it's, it, this is actually, this is so hilarious from the reboot of the Perry Mason show on HBO. They right. sent this to me and it says Mason Dairy on it. <laughs> because the story is that anyway it's a great bottle to keep in the fridge to have my water but it took forever to get the coffee mug really oh so you know well it's unfortunate because our last comment of the day i do think might be the mug winner Jana s says that was a bad move for them off to jail they goat um off to jail they goat But that is going to do it for today's comment section. As always, if you'd like a chance to get your comment feature on the show, go ahead and leave those over on our YouTube community page. We're also on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. Um, So yeah, we'd love to interact with you. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Bye, Will. Thank you, Rodney, so much for coming back. It's always such a pleasure. And and I love that your background's just a slightly different one in the right. criminal justice system, you know, right. so we can <laughs> so we can talk about litigation and other avenues when things happen, like with our first case. I really appreciate yep. that insight. So uh, where can people find you either on social media or your law firm or sure. whatever you're up to? Uh, you, can, you can find me everywhere. Um, my name and Julian. Uh, social media is Rodney Diggs Esquire. That's where you'll find me on uh, Instagram, um, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, but my firm is Ivy McNeil White, Purcell and Diggs. Go to our website, uh, www.imwlaw.com. Excellent. Excellent, Rodney. It's a pleasure. I hope to see you back here soon. Absolutely. And y'all can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. You can find all of our episodes, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to True Crime Daily's YouTube channel. Also, you can sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. 